Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hello and welcome to the History of England, episode 102, Highs and Lows. Last week saw Edward buying his freedom by leaving his friends in the hands of his creditors. He absolutely had to get back home, because in the January 1340 Parliament, the Commons had finally decided to bare its teeth. Over the last few years, Edward's good political sense had deserted him. All that Parliament had seen of their leader were nasty and increasingly high-handed letters demanding more money and, while he was at it, sacking perfectly good men who'd worked hard to get him what he needed. Over on the continent, Edward had without doubt allowed himself to become cut off and obsessed. Every day he faced the humiliation of constant money worries and demands from his so-called allies. He was surrounded by a small group of courtiers the likes of William Montague, the Earl of Salisbury, and Robert Hufford, the Earl of Suffolk. These are men who'd been in the tunnel beneath Nottingham Castle, men constantly with him, and men now in danger of making many other magnates, on whom the monarchy relied for its health, feel cut off from a relationship with their king. So, in January 1340, the Commons of Parliament had finally put their foot down and said no. They would not simply give Edward what he wanted, Things had to change around here. The significance of this Parliament is far wider than simply a spat between King and Parliament. Here we have the Commons of Parliament objecting. Despite their own misgivings, the magnates had agreed to allow Edward to levy a tax on their own personal lands. But they'd agreed that they could not grant a general tax on everyone. That required the wider agreement of the Commons. Now look, I don't want to go overboard on a sort of orgy of constitutional history. But from this simple decision comes the root of the power of the Commons of Parliament. 
It had long been established that the king needed Parliament's assent to get a general tax. Edward I, though, had got away with a few cheeky little practices, such as asking the bloke standing around in his bedchamber if they'd approve a tax, and then deciding that that was plenty. Edward III had decided that he needed to separate his magnates, his great council or magnum concilium, from the rest. And so we have what we now know as the House of Lords, i.e. the Great Council, and the House of Commons, i.e. the Knights of the Shires and the Burgesses of the Towns. And now in 1340, it was in practice agreed that it was the House of Commons alone that could agree a general tax. It reaffirms the principle of no taxation without the assent of the people who are being taxed, which had begun to gain ground under Edward I. Anyway, between March 29th and May 10th, Edward was in Parliament with the Lords and Commons at Westminster. The Lords and the Commons were not wearing their happy faces. And now we come to one of the main accusations levelled at Edward, which is that he didn't have a domestic policy. He just wanted to joust, party, make babies with Pippa, make war and get himself lots of gold and glory. So when it came to domestic policies, he simply agreed to whatever got him to those ends. He had no legislative programme, and he didn't initiate legislation like his grandfather Edward I. At best, he simply said yes to what was put in front of him. Well, let's see as we go, shall we? But it has to be said that up to this Parliament, Edward had shown precious little interest in the administrative workings of the realm. That was his minister's job. He had no interest in the detail, and just got cross if the results weren't there when he needed them. And maybe that's right. He's king, after all. Not a manager. By the way, before we go on, on the baby-making front, he and Philippa are doing a good job. More than that, they're doing a great job. They have four at this point, with another on the way, Edward of Woodstock, born in 1330, then Isabella, born in 1332 and already showing evidence of being overindulged by doting parents. Lionel, born in Antwerp in 1338, and bless me if Pippa hasn't just produced a fourth in the name of John. Born March 1340. Of course, Philippa is in Ghent, effectively a hostage for Edward's allies. So the newborn son John will be known as John of Gaunt, Gaunt being the way they said Ghent at the time. We'll hear much more of John of Gaunt as time goes by. Anyway, that's just a by the by. So back to the main story. Basically, at the 1340 Parliament, Edward faced a stream of demands from the knights and townsmen that they were happy for him to do his royal thing. They were a bit surprised at becoming King of France, but fine, OK, if that's the way it is, who are we to argue? And we appreciate that you need money to do this, but, and it's a big but, there need to be some rules before you can have your money. These rules amounted to a substantial legislative programme. First of all, the practice of purveyance was roundly hated and detested and had to be done properly from now on. Purveyance, you'll remember, is the seizure by the king of food and provisions for his army. So there were rules put in place to make sure a proper process was followed and payment was made. The way sheriffs were appointed was revised. Debts to the crown were pardoned. The king had to do all the normal reconfirmation of charters stuff. And also a system was implemented for the use of standard weights and measures. And as an interesting footnote, the practice of Englishry was finally abolished. Any guesses about what this is? 
Well, those of you who have been with me for a long time might remember that Billy de Conk was forced to impose a law on his new rebellious and surly Anglo-Saxon subjects to protect his beloved Normans. And this was called the Murderum Fine. This said that if a man was found dead and it couldn't be proved that he was English, then the whole hundred would be fined. We've not talked about hundreds for a while, so just to remind you, they're the ancient Anglo-Saxon administrative unit, still alive and kicking. Well, in 1340, this law was finally repealed. The 14th century sees the development of a much greater sense of English national identity, and here's one of the signs of that process. One more thing. The question of the relative status of France and England in the mind of the king was discussed and agreed. Now that Edward was claiming the throne of France, the question naturally arose. So which of those took precedence? Assuming Edward won, would England once again find itself to be a lower order of human being, subject to kings like William the Conqueror, whose real interest lay elsewhere? So statements were agreed a Parliament that ran like this. The realm of England never was or ought to be in the obedience of the kings of France. And our realm of England and the people of the same shall never be made obedient to us nor our heirs and successors as kings of France. And so it's been ever since. So, all that being agreed, Parliament opened its collective purse and gave generously. And never doubt that Edward had the gift of the gab. His presence alone in conciliatory mode probably did an awful lot to help put things right. However, Parliament jolly well needed to be generous, because Edward had come away from the continent promising to return with £190,000. Yes, that's £190,000. Quite how he thought this was going to happen, it's anyone's guess. But Parliament voted him a ninth to add to the subsidy the Church had already agreed to pay, and Parliament agreed a special duty on wool to boot. Edward would have been well pleased, and set June the 12th as the date for the assembly of his fleet and army to renew the attack in France. While all this was going on, news was arriving from France, and it wasn't great news. The Flemings had launched a three-pronged attack on the French. The targets were towns which were in Hainault, but which were controlled and garrisoned by the French, in particular a town called Tournai. One of the armies was controlled by the earls of Suffolk and Salisbury, leading over 2,000 men. And one morning in April, as the army marched through northern France, Salisbury and his mates decided that a bit of extracurricular plundering around the town of Lille might be a good idea. So off they went with 30 men. Even in a warlike age, the chronicler described this as a piece of, quote, audacious folly. And so it proved. They were spotted by the French garrison and, before you could say dipstick, were surrounded and cut off. Now, of course, they laughed in the face of overwhelming numbers and fought on with their backs to the moat. Before long, 60 men lay dead in front of them. But unfortunately, only seven of their own party remained, at which point they were overwhelmed. Which seems like a good time to reprise the conventions of war in an age of chivalry. Essentially, noblemen like Salisbury and Ufford were far too valuable to be killed in the normal turn of events. They could be ransomed for huge profit. By way of colour, here's a wee quote from Foissart to get us started. It comes from his description of the Battle for Caen 
1346. The constable and the Count of Tankerville reached the gate at the entry to the bridge in safety. They could see that the battle was already lost. Looking out from the gate tower where they had taken refuge and seeing the truly horrible carnage which was taking place, the constable and the Count began to fear that they themselves might be drawn into it. They caught sight of a gallant English knight with only one eye, called Sir Thomas Holland. They were much relieved when they saw him, and called out to him as he passed, Come to us in this gate tower, and make us your prisoners. The thing about this quote that sounds slightly strange to modern ears, or I think sounds a bit odd, is here are these soldiers in war apparently worrying that they might actually be killed. They would be surprised, horrified. Surely this can't be so. Well, isn't this what war is all about? Well, for the average man in the Clapham horse-drawn cart, that was indeed so, but not for the nobility. They were far too valuable. They would assume they'd be taken for ransom. Losing an engagement could still spell ruin, but death was something quite else. Welsh soldiers were viewed with some horror by both English and French, partly because they had the nasty habit of creeping around and killing nobles with their long knives. Ransoms. They were the way to really make money. Clearly loot and pillage was right up there, but get yourself some juicy prisoners and you could be made. For some of the poorer knights, it could be their one chance of wealth and success for their family. The responsibility for these prisoners was a private affair, not the responsibility of the state, and they were tradable. Edward III, for example, was a great collector of prisoners, buying them off his own nobles and then pursuing the claim and making a profit. So you could essentially make any agreement you like with the individual, though the agreed rule was that the amount of ransom had to be payable by the captured knight. It had to be reasonable. Then the knight was sent off on parole to raise the money, sometimes leaving hostages, sometimes not. While on parole the knight in question would have to promise not to fight against the other side. All of this was not just a matter of personal honour. There are plenty of occasions where the rules get broken and claims are pursued through the courts. Although the ransoms were supposed to be reasonable and supposed to be paid by the hostage, many ended up trying to get support from their king. Froissart recorded the memories of many prisoners squatting on the ground outside the offices of the French king's household officials, day after day, trying to get themselves an audience and a grant. And so Julie, Salisbury and Suffolk were sent off to the King of France and imprisoned in Paris. At the next truce, both were released on parole and by 1342 had agreed payment to Philip on the basis that they wouldn't fight again in France against him. And so everyone was happy. The English lords had their lives... The French king had earned some cash and removed some key leaders from the war. However, there was a French knight with Salisbury's party at the time. A traitor, effectively. There was no ransom for him. He was dragged over to a tree and hanged summarily, since through his treachery he'd broken the code. So this bad news reached Edward while he was at a tournament, and more bad news continued to arrive. The rest of the Flemish attack failed as well, and the French themselves were now raiding the rest of Hainault, 
and the Scots were attacking the English border. So, picture the scene. The King was at Ipswich in Suffolk, over in the east of England, and he's been meeting his council. Elsewhere in the town, the Archbishop of Canterbury receives a visitor from the continent, a messenger sent by an ally of Edward called the Duke of Gelders. The messenger tells the Archbishop of Canterbury all about the great army of the sea. It's a massive French fleet of over 200 ships. It's appeared in the estuary outside the main port of Sloys on the Flemish coast and has brutally taken over the port. The Archbishop threw up his hands in horror and rushed out to give the King the news. What's abundantly clear is that French organisation at this stage of the war was consistently more impressive than English. Crews and armies were paid and assembled much more quickly. Philip had decided that he would strangle this alliance by building a wall between Edward and his allies. If Edward wanted to come over and make war, he'd have to get through Philip's great army of the sea first. At this point, Edward clearly begins to panic. His war was once again moving poo-wood. His wife and son were stranded in Ghent. He had to get over to the continent to stop the rot. But in his way was a fleet that massively outnumbered anything he could put on the water, and it wasn't just about the numbers either. The French also had the advantage of quality. As I think we've said before, the English fleet was pulled together for specific purposes from private merchantmen so they were difficult to assemble, but also the boats were cogs which were just adapted for war, i.e. they were relatively small single-masted ships with high castles front and back to form a fighting platform. Now the French also used large numbers of this kind of ship, but they also had a core of much more manoeuvrable oared galleys. At Sloys, therefore, among the 200 ships were 28 oared boats as well as seven royal sailing ships. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 
Over the last few years, we've seen Edward struggle. He lost his touch with his Parliament. He's completely lost the plot with the money situation. He's blamed his ministers when he should have blamed himself. But you have to admire his resilience, his courage at this point. He knows a solution to this problem, which is, in the words of Corporal Jones, that they don't like it upham. So he declared to his council that he would at once take his fleet and attack and destroy the French. The Archbishop, a man called Stratford, rushed into the council chamber. He insisted to Edward that the whole thing must be called off, and the council debate grew heated. Edward angrily pointed out that this would mean abandoning the coalition, and Stratford, in his distress, stormed out of the chamber. To back up his case, Edward called his main man of naval warfare, the ex-pirate John Crabbe. To his complete fury, Crabbe backed up everything Stratford had said. Way too risky, sire. Edward glared at Crabbe and the quivering council and snarled, You and the Archbishop are in league, preaching me a sermon to stop me crossing. Let me tell you this. I will cross, and you who are frightened where there is no fear, you may stay at home. You can't criticise Edward for his courage and leadership. He was a genuine, honest-to-goodness, no-poo warrior king. One week later, Edward stepped aboard his flagship, the good ship Thomas, and two days later, on Friday the 23rd of June, they approached the coast of Flanders, and ahead of them saw a forest of masts. Now the principle of naval warfare in days medieval, and really until the arrival of effective cannon, was to recreate land warfare as closely as you could. So, you charged up, firing from your high fore and aft castles, which were hopefully higher than the enemy's, and swept their decks with arrows or bolts. Then you slung your hook, i.e. your grappling hook, over their boat, tied the two together and went over the sides, hopefully to give them a kicking. So size and numbers meant a lot, and in both regards, the French were ahead on points, with 19,000 men, and by now 213 ships, and among those, the massive Genoese galleys, against an English fleet of no more than 160 ships, and quite possibly as low as 120. Edward waited. He knew that the French fleet was more manoeuvrable with their oared galleys. If he attacked too soon, they could row to windward, and attacking from behind. Also, if he attacked in the morning, the sun would be in the face of his archers. Ahead of him, the French looked impressive. Three ranks of ships. But appearances can be deceptive. The French had crammed themselves in across the estuary, and so had removed their advantage of speed and manoeuvrability. By putting themselves into three ranks, they effectively gave the English three smaller fleets to have a hack at. Baha, I hear you say. Well, how is that different to any battle? Well, the point here is that there is no room for manoeuvre, no way for the French to flank their enemy to employ their additional numbers. At last, things were as Edward wanted them, and he gave the order to attack, with himself in the van on the Thomas. In the centre of the French line was the massive flagship, the Christopher, ironically captured a few years back from the English themselves. As they went forward the English archers immediately proved their worth, with their much longer range and rate of fire than the opposing Genoese crossbowmen, a phrase I imagine you should prepare yourself for over the next few episodes. The Thomas threw itself straight at the massive Christopher, grappling hooks were thrown and the fight was on. 
Edward himself was wounded with a spear through his thigh, but before long, the Christopher was taken and the French flag torn down. Despite early success, it was a hard fight and brutal. Even Foissart reflected some of the horror and the particular brand of bravery needed for war at sea, as he reported on the battle. It is indeed a bloody and murderous battle. Sea fights are always fiercer than fights on land, because retreat and flight are impossible. Every man is required to hazard his life and hope for success, relying on his own personal bravery and skill. So it was hard fought. From three in the afternoon to seven, the fight at the front line went on as the French second and third lines waited. And then they saw English ships coming through the line and it was clear the French had been beaten. The English were now through to much smaller ships. Many of the big French ships the English had captured were now manned by the English and so from there on in it was a massacre. Behind the French, the Flemings, reading the signs, suddenly began to appear behind in any boat they could find and attack the smallest Norman merchantman in the third line. The more mobile French ships tried to leg it, and some did escape, but by and large it was as complete a victory as you can imagine. Between 16,000 and 18,000 Frenchmen lost their lives. The French admiral was killed in the fighting. The second-in-command was found and dragged in front of Edward. Normally, of course, this would be the signal for a bit of chivalry and a fat ransom, but this man was thought of as a pirate, so he was dragged to the mast and hanged. As news of this massive defeat reached France, it hit hard. French morale suffered. The nobles blamed the defeat on the crudeness and cowardice of the lower order of society, the start of a noticeable trend towards class warfare in France under the pressure of defeat. The Norman coastal communities were devastated with the loss of their ships and menfolk. For the English, of course, the effect on morale was equally dramatic. They had struggled through three years of gloom and failure. Here at last was success. Froissart recorded the party that night. After winning his victory, the English king spent the whole of the night on board his ships at sea, amid such a banging and blowing of cymbals and trumpets, drums and cornets, that God's own thunder would not have been heard above it. There's no doubt the victory had an impact. It restored English morale and Edward's cred, if nothing else. On the south coast of England, they were convinced that the days of French raids were over. This was not true. Sloys did not put an end to French naval power and conflict in the Channel. It did not end raids on England. But it was the end of what had begun to look like French naval dominance of the Channel. The English wool fleet could sail again. Edward never had to worry again about how he was going to get over the Channel. Meanwhile, there was even good news from Gascony. You may or may not remember the discussion about the importance of the three major families of the south-west the Albray, the Foix and the Armagnac. Well, basically, Gaston de Foix had been making hay for the French in 1338-9, but had not been entirely without self-interest. So yes, he'd taken English towns and castles in the south, but along the way, if it transpired that some of these castles and towns, oops, actually belonged to the Albray and the Armagnac, then it was zut alors, quel dommage and a shrug of the shoulders, and tant pis. 
By 1340, both the other families had had enough. What would be their advantage if they fought loyally for the French crown and then at the end of the war they just had a massive County of Foix-Béarn sitting on their borders? So Armagnac launched attacks on towns owned by Foix and became basically neutral for a while, though never joining the English camp. Ingham's greatest success was to bring the Albrey and all his clients and resources over to the English side. The results looked very good. The English launched a surprise attack at the Garonne, their first offensive for some time. And meanwhile, local lords used this success as an excuse to rebel against their French overlord. Let's be clear, this is not enthusiasm for the English cause or a deep-rooted love of Edward. It's opportunism, pure and simple. Here's an excuse to make a bid for freedom and better rights. In the north, Edward marched on the town of Tournai. And then it all starts to go wrong, and money is the root of this particular evil. Tournai was not a particularly strategic town, but on the borders of Flanders it was in the way. But it was fanatically loyal to Philip, and was well prepared for a siege. Basically, most large towns of the period were very difficult to take, if the garrison was large enough, loyal and vigilant. The larger ones were almost impossible to surround completely, and very often supplies crept in. So try as he might, Edward couldn't take Tournai. The Allies demanded their money, money Edward didn't yet have. Despite the parliamentary grant, collection was way down on the assessment, and anyway, was going to get nowhere near the 190k he needed. Wool prices, with all this dumping of wool on the market, had plummeted. The Allies bickered constantly. The Brabanters fell out with the Flemings. One Brabantine noble insulted Artevelde, shouting at him to go home and brew beer. Artevelde ran him through with his sword. Business meetings those days were so much more exciting than they are today. And meanwhile, Philip was canny enough to know that as long as he held Tournai, there was no need to risk all on a battle. And so he refused to fight. Edward even resorted to the time on a last resort of desperate men by challenging Philip to combat. These were slightly embarrassing to turn down, but always were, of course. So, when the Pope's envoys oiled their way into the English and French camps talking peace, they found receptive ears. Philip wanted rid of Edward, had decided that he wouldn't fight unless he had to, and was worried that Tournai was about to fall. Artevelde wanted recognition and an end to the interdict. And Edward realised that he stood on the edge of disaster. He couldn't go forward, and he didn't want to go back. It was enormously frustrating. Tournai could be about to fall, but he just could not keep his allies together. All he could do now was to get himself out of the mire with some honour. And in the southwest, once again, it was proved that without extra troops, Ingham couldn't hang on to any of the gains. The French counterattacked and picked off most of the rebellious lords one by one. The English held on to some gains, but the tide had turned back towards the French. And so Edward treated. The Treaty of Echemelin was the normal truce. You held on to what you gained, but that was it. Although also... Philip recognised Artevelde's position and the interdict was to be lifted by the Pope. Basically, the treaty was a defeat for Edward by any other terms. At very best, he'd managed to extricate himself from a tricky situation. 
he found he'd jumped out of the frying pan into the fire. Edward arrived back in Ghent and held a magnificent tournament and feasted with all his friends in a desperate attempt to declare victory. But the glorious King of England was now basically in debtor's prison. It was an open prison, obviously, and was disguised by the trappings of the court in exile, but essentially Edward couldn't leave Flanders unless his allies allowed him, and they wouldn't allow him until he paid his debts. Edward must have held his head in his hands. Surely this was not what kingship was supposed to be all about. He could, of course, have blamed himself for the extraordinary extravagance of his strategy against France, but such is not the way of kings. As far as he was concerned, he'd simply been failed by idle, incompetent and maybe even treacherous ministers. His letters home, as well as being increasingly desperate in their demands for money, were also increasingly bitter. In October he wrote, Truly, if we had had but a pittance at the right moment, we could have accomplished our great enterprise and achieved renown above all other princes. That pittance touch, nice. He began to fixate, in particular, on his Archbishop of Canterbury, Stratford. He wrote the following to the Pope. I believe that the Archbishop wanted me, for lack of money, to be betrayed and killed. This is quite an accusation. But by November 1340, Edward was also mad with fury. He'd spent most of his time fighting off angry creditors. Back in England, the Regency Council was almost as desperate, calling the sheriffs in to account for the lack of wool and cash. At one point, they wrote back to him, We dare not do more than we have, for we shall have a civil war on our hands. The population will fight us rather than give us their wool. On the night of the 30th of November, 1340, everything in London was quiet. The ministers at Westminster, the Mayor of London, Treasurer, Chancellor and so on, had retired for the night, no doubt continuing to panic at their failure to fulfil the King's demands. The constable of the Tower of London was out of town and comfortable that the Royal Mouse was away, so the tower was dark and the gatehouse unguarded. The sub-constable was dozing at his post, when suddenly all hell was let loose. One of the guards was claiming that the king, of all people, had arrived at the tower and was demanding to know why the tower was dark and unguarded. Lights were lit. The sub-constable grovelled on his knees in front of a tired, wet, cold and mainly angry king. As rooms were hurriedly prepared, the king sent orders for all his ministers to come at once. Edward had sold his allies a dummy. Leaving a letter for the Flemings, he'd pretended to be going for a ride with eight companions, William de Bohun, Walter Manny and others, around the suburbs of Ghent. As soon as he was out of town, he pressed metal to the horse flesh and rode hell for leather to Sloys and found a boat. Fortunately, the wind was in the right direction, but the weather was hideous, and they were lashed by storms for three days, bringing Edward within an inch of his life. Finally, he came alongside the Tower of London in a right old paddy. He was in debt. He'd left his wife in Ghent. He was cold, wet, tired, and to cap it all, there was no one so much as to give him a how's your father at the entrance to his kingdom's greatest fortress. At dawn, the Chancellor and Treasurer both rushed in. Within minutes of seeing Edward, they were back on the job market. Other ministers, as they arrived, were put in separate rooms and interrogated separately. By the 14th of December, most of them had been imprisoned, including the Chief Justice and four judges. 
So you might say that 1340 had been an eventful year. It ended with the king back and looking for a victim on whom to vent his rage. And he had a good idea of who he was going to select. His sights were firmly set on the Archbishop of Canterbury. Which seems like a good place to leave it. Next week we'll talk about the crisis of 1341 and talk about Brittany. Until then, as ever, my grateful thanks to everyone who comments on the website or iTunes or joins the Facebook group, or indeed for all of you for listening. Good luck everyone and have a great week.